0: All right, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning? Today's reading is out of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, go with, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, because Peter doesn't want to help apparently. For they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish you have just caught.'" So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. He threw, he, you know, he decided to get some work. fish. About 153. But even with so many in the net, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.'" None of the disciples dared ask him, "'Who are you?' They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish." This was, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, good morning. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Go fishing. See? It's very easy, guys. The Bible is very easy to figure out. What do you do when you don't know what to do, right? Right? What do you do? See, I like this. This is much better than lately, right? I I can take some talk back. I can handle it. What do you do in those in-between moments in your life? Have any of you ever been in an in-between moment in your life, right? Those times when you knew you were headed somewhere, but you didn't necessarily know where you were headed or how you were going to get there? This is me every time I try to drive somewhere. Ashley wants me to look up directions and I say, I have an internal sense of direction. I will feel my way there, right? Does anybody else No? Okay, I do have a tremendous internal sense of direction. South is that way. <laughs> uh, we all find ourselves in moments like that, right? Where we're confused, we don't know where we're headed. Something has happened to us. Something has dislocated us in some sense. We're a little discombobulated in our heart and our mind. Maybe we're unsettled. And in those moments, we tend to return to what is familiar to us, don't we? Something that hopefully roots and ground us, grounds us in those moments. It's tempting in those in between times to run to distraction or to run to some type of vice to just kind of um, medicate the anxiety that we experience. But when we run to distraction because we are scared, we actually kind of divert ourselves from the actual path that Jesus had, has us on. Because as we all know, as we all know, life is not linear. It is not always clear. It doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. And there will always be what, what, uh, what certain theologians call a liminal space, a space between a liminal space is like the, uh, the entryway to a door you're standing in, right? You're not in the building and you're not out of the building, but you're kind of in between those spaces. And those spaces are inherently anxiety-producing, aren't they? There's a restlessness in our hearts in those spaces, And it's unwise to give ourselves to unhealthy practices, but it is wise, I think, to go back to familiar things. This is why it's so important that we build habits and structures into our lives, that when we are in those kind of liminal spaces, when we are in those spaces in between, we will naturally default back not to our bad habits, and you all know what that is for you, right? But back to a kind of habit that allows us to ground ourselves and root ourselves allows us to establish ourselves in a place and in a time. You see, the disciples in this story are in that one of those liminal spaces. They're in the doorway, right? Between the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. They're between when Jesus has risen from the dead and when their life as disciples and apostles and Christians is going to begin. They are in the middle of of a disorienting time. They know Jesus has risen from the dead. They know that everything has changed. They know that the resurrection has shown a light out that will not be snuffed out, but they do not know how that is going to affect them. Just for the record, this is where we are actually in the church calendar as well, between Easter and Pentecost. That's in June, I believe. You see, these disciples have seen the Lord, They know that everything is different, but they don't know what exactly that means for them individually or as a group, as a collective. They don't yet know how the resurrection is going to affect their lives or their vocations. And so for Peter, Simon Peter and these disciples, they do the thing that they know how to do. They go fishing. Rich was correct, as he usually is. They go and fish. Now, if you remember, these disciples, the bulk of them that Jesus calls, were fishermen. This was their trade. Now, in the ancient world, you didn't uh, go to high school and then to college and decide what you wanted to do. When you were born, your vocation was selected for you, unless you, unless you decided to go into a religious vocation, and that was something you could possibly choose. Uh, by and large, you were going to do what your father did. And your father did what his father did, and his father did what his father did, and I think we're at three or four great-grandparents at that point, but the point being, these men were fishermen, and so they went back to the vocation that they understood, and they knew. They went fishing, and they, uh, they went back to their trade. They went back to the thing that felt familiar. I'm sure that these three years that these men followed Jesus, they had not forgotten how to fish, right? They had a lifetime of fishing in their bones, and they, they had not forgotten how to do it. There's also kind of a practical aspect to this. They probably needed a little bit of money, right? They had spent all their money in Jerusalem during, during the Passover. They'd, pro- they'd had, uh, Jesus, Jesus had um, died, and that was horrible, and then he was resurrected, and that was wonderful, but they were probably running out of a little bit of cash, And so they go back home, and they get out on the boat, and they begin to fish. They begin to fish. Now, the text tells us that they were fishing at night, which was a common thing for fishermen in that day, because they didn't really have refrigerators, and you could salt cure fish. They had ways of preserving. But the primary way that a fisherman made his living was by selling fish in the morning for that day. So you would make a catch, and you would sell it for that day. And so the disciples were out all night attempting to probably make some money and do the familiar thing and and do the right thing in this in-between kind of liminal space in their lives. But what happens when they're out in the boat? They don't catch anything. Could you imagine the one thing you're good at, right? The one thing you think, oh man, when I go and do this, I can at least fish, right? I can at least fall back on this fishing ability that I have. If everything goes to pot, right, I can at least do that. And what happens? They don't catch a thing. They don't catch a thing. And the, the text tells us that as they are nearing the morning, right? They're, they're nearing the time in which they would come ashore and sell their fish and make money. Have you ever spent a whole day working on something and it totally came up for nothing? It was completely futile activity. Well, this is the bulk of my home improvement projects, right? I work and work and work and work and then I turn around and I realize I have nothing to show for it. Or I've spent more money and gas running back and forth to Menards to get the stuff that I forgot. Uh, amen, right? Uh, every project requires no, a minimum of four trips to a home improvement store. That's just the general rule that I've... But have you, ever been, have you ever come to the end of a day full of work and realize, like, I have nothing to show for this? I have nothing to show for this. And this is where the disciples are in this moment. Now, the one thing that I think I have, I personally have in common with the disciples more than any other thing in my life is that I, too, am a horrible fisherman. Uh, I'm abysmal. I grew up uh, around the lake. My grandfather uh, had a had a cabin on Clear Lake. My, my parents still have a cabin on Clear Lake. And they, we have access to fishing poles and water and fish. And yet, as many times as I have thrown my rod or my reel or my Line. See, maybe it's because I don't know the name of the things that you fish with. That's the problem. As many times as I've thrown my line into the water, I I know I've caught fish. I just can't remember having ever caught a fish. And I think it runs in my family because I come from a big family on my mother's side, and I have a lot of uh, cousins all around my age. And I have this distinct memory of my grandpa looking at all of us boys, feral boys in the summer, grabbing a bunch of fishing rods and saying to us, "Hey, boys." Let's go drown some worms, which meant we're going to put a line in the water, but we're not going to catch anything because, <laughs> because catching fi- not being an inability to catch fish apparently runs in my family. Uh, so I know what this feels like, right? I think you do too, to a certain extent. Whether you haven't been able to catch fish or not, I don't know, but you know the futility of a day's work that isn't kind of panning out, don't you? You know, the, you know that feeling. And can you imagine that feeling compounded on the feeling of being in one of those in-between spaces and not knowing where to go or what to do? It's kind of a hard spot to be in, isn't it? And yet, from the shore, in the middle of this kind of troubling evening that these disciples were having, I'm sure they were sniping at each other, they hear a man say, why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? Now, I have no doubt that they had not been only fishing off the left side of the boat for the entirety of the night, right? They had tried the right side of the boat. Has anybody ever told you to do something that you've already done, and you're like, I've tried that, bro. Get off my back, right? That's, uh, if you've had, if you have children, apparently, occasionally, when you're like, trying to like, get something for them, your child will tell you like, the, the cheese is in that drawer. And you'll go, I know the cheese is in that drawer. Let me be the parent. But uh, so this voice comes from the shore and tells them to throw the net over the right side of the boat. And they do so. They, they listen. The text doesn't tell us that they they argue. The text just says, well, might as well try that again. So they throw their nets over the right side of the boat. And what happens? They catch a haul. They bring in a haul of fish. The text tells us that they haul in 153. Now, that's a very strange number to have in the text of Scripture. Scholars debate as to why it is exactly that that number is there. They all agree that that number is there for a reason. Some argue that in antiquity, um, at this time, it was believed that there were 153 different people groups in the world. Uh, and that this is one, one scholar I read argued this. And that that 153 is representative of all of the people that the disciples will uh, spread the gospel to. I've heard that. I've also read that that was um, that was something that wasn't true. But uh, it's it's we don't know what the what the reason for that number is. But we know that uh, that the that they bring in an abundance of fish. Now, one thing you need to remember when you're reading the Bible, is that the accounts that we read in the Bible are often more dense and deeper. Than the just the surface level reading that we often come across, and when you read this story in particular, I, if you're like me when I was reading it this week, I was coming to this conclusion that like there's something more happening here, right? This is a story of some disciples catching some fish and, and meeting Jesus for the third time, but there's something being communicated here that's a little bit deeper, that's a little bit more significant. That like there there there's a story being told on multiple levels here. Are you tracking with me? There's something deeper going on. There are some themes here, actually, that we kind of see ripple through the entirety of the biblical text, especially in the Gospels. Some themes that actually reveal to us maybe what it was that Jesus was attempting to communicate to these disciples by virtue of this miracle that he asked them to participate in. And so I think the themes that we can pull out of this text are uh, really... uh, it can really be summed up in just three words and those three words are fish say fish good good work you did it I'm a, I feel like a real past a real preacher when I ask you to repeat after me sight sight you say sight excellent and the third is bread nailed it these three images, I think, communicate something to us of the story of, of Scripture that has come before it. And it can help us to glean some of the insights of why John wrote this down, wrote this miracle down for us and what he wants us to learn from it. So these men are fishermen. So first, fish, right? These men are fishermen. And this is not the first time that Jesus has used fish in a miraculous way, is it? This is like Jesus' third or fourth fish miracle, right? He loves using fish, uh, probably because fish were uh, plentiful in this day, and they were always around. You see, but what I want to show you here, and what I think is important here, is that God will always come to us in the language that we are used to speaking in order to communicate to us. He will always speak to us in the way that we are most equipped to best understand Him speak. And for these men, the thing that they knew was fish. And so the language that Jesus uses to communicate his plans and purposes for them is fish. Fascinating, right? If you think back to the story of the call of these disciples, first Peter and his brother Andrew, and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we are told that they are fishermen, right? And when Jesus first calls them in Matthew's gospel, he calls them and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? And maybe this story is a little bit of of Jesus attempting to call back to these disciples, to to bring back into their mind that thing that He originally said to them when He first called them to follow Him as as their disciples. You see, uh, scholars uh, tell us, in, in fact, that when these men were called, they had to lay down their nets, and yet now they pick their nets back up, right? They, they've laid down their nets to follow Jesus, and now they pick their nets back up, and yet Jesus uses these nets again to communicate to them, this is what I'm going to do. We, you, are, you are still going to be a fisher of men, only the, the haul, right, that you're going to bring in, the, the harvest of fish that you're going to, bring, going to bring in the boat is going to be bigger than you would ever even have expected, You see, for Jesus, this fish analogy apparently is a way of him communicating to these disciples that they are going to go out into the world as his kingdom ambassadors and they are going to build his kingdom and that people, or fish, are going to stream into this thing called the kingdom of God. That Jesus, by virtue of his authority and by virtue of his spirit, is going to use these disciples to continue his work out into the world. Possibly to the 153 different people groups of all of the world. You see, this is important, I think. That God accomplishes his work in and through us. God will always accomplish his work in and through us. You know, these disciples didn't go, oh, there's 153 fish down there, right, right? Let's throw our nets over and get it. They had to participate with the word of God in order to bring about this harvest. And it's almost as if Jesus is telling these disciples, like, look, this thing you're going to do, I I'm, I'm promised you, I've told you and I tell you again, you're going to be fishers of men. This thing is going to happen. The kingdom is going to kind of bust out in your very presence, but here's what you need to know. You just need to listen to what I say and do what I say, and I will give the increase. It's almost as if our responsibility as kingdom people in this world is not to make things happen but to simply be open and available to what it is that God might do as we listen to his voice. So that's the first thing, fish, the first theme. The second theme is sight. The disciples don't recognize Jesus, do they? They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. When they they cast their nets over the side of the boat, they're not doing it because they know that the person telling them to do this thing is Jesus. They just are doing it because they're doing it. Someone suggested that they do it, and it's a last-ditch effort before the morning, and they, they want to do it. They're not wide awake to what is happening, are they? They do, they do not see what is going on. And it appears that Jesus didn't want them to know what they were doing either. Now, this is a common kind of theme in the Bible, in, especially in post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Jesus comes to people but he's veiled. People can't see him. They're confused about what his real identity is. You think of the story of uh, Mary Magdalene in the garden when she confuses Jesus for the gardener. You think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus comes and walks beside them, and they're not aware of who he is until they sit down to a meal. You see, Jesus is at work despite the lack of sight and understanding of his disciples. God is always working. God is always working, even if we can't see what he's doing. And this is something that Christians, I think, need to come to a deep understanding of. God is not sometimes working and sometimes not working. This is what we think, right? If I can't see what's happening If I can't see the way that the pieces kind of come together, then God is obviously not at work. He's not a lazy dad who needs a good reason to get up off the couch, right? This is not who God is. God is always active, and he's always working to see the kingdom made manifest in our midst. But we are not always able to see it. And God is very often working through the mundane and the ordinary corners and crevices of our lives. You see, God is often using you to build his kingdom in ways and in moments that you are not even aware that he is doing it. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that God can be at work even when we're not aware of it? It's important because if you, are, if you have to be aware of everything that God is doing, if you have to know all of it, then that makes you God, Right? And God is not in control. You're in control. But rather, we have to be uh, cognizant or aware of the fact that God is always at work. He is always, he is always working to build his kingdom. The Spirit is always active in and around us to bring about his good plans and purposes. And even if we don't see it, we, cannot, we should always walk forward in faith, knowing and believing that God is about his redeeming work in the world. Even if things in the moment, it just feels like, man, we're casting out a line and we're not catching anything. You see, the truth that opens our eyes and our hearts and makes it possible for us to participate in God's kingdom is sometimes held from us, and that's Okay. Because if you knew everything, you would be insufferable, right? If I knew everything, I would be insufferable. But God often works in the dark parts of our lives in ways that we are not aware of. And that is good news. It's good news because there are things about my life that I don't see what God is doing. I don't see how he's working. I don't see what he's bringing about. And yet, and yet, he's working. And we can have a kind of quiet and steadfast faith that even though things aren't immediately apparent to us, God is at work. He is moving. He is doing what he said he would do. He is building his kingdom. And we are able to participate in that even when we're not aware of it. But we do sometimes become aware of it, don't we? And that's where the third theme comes in, the theme of bread. In verse 12, this is what what we're told Jesus does once they get the fish and they bring it up on shore. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, gave it to them, and then he did the same with the fish. Jesus is having a meal with his disciples here. And it is in this meal that their eyes are open to the work of God in their midst. They begin to see and know at the breaking of the bread that God, that Jesus is in their midst and that something is happening with them that they did not expect and they did not not anticipate, but is happening nonetheless. You see, there is something profound and simple about this image, isn't there? about the simple breakfast of bread and fish that communicates to us the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus, as we said earlier, doesn't always communicate to us in the most profound earth-shattering of ways. But Jesus often uses the natural world and the regular stuff of our lives, what we eat and what we drink, as a means of communicating both to us his life and his truth. This is often called what, again, theologians use a big term for it, it's called a sacramental imagination. And it just means that the stuff that God uses is the stuff of this world to communicate who he is. We signify this by the fact that we take communion together, right? And we don't believe that communion is anything other than bread and juice or bread and wine, depending on your tradition. It's just normal stuff, right? It's just bread. It's just juice. And yet, we believe that in, the, in it and through it, God is communicating something to us. It's the same with the waters of baptism, right? We don't believe that there's anything special, particularly about the water, other than if you live in Cedar Falls, it's got too much lime in it, right? <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Uh, somebody needs to tell my fridge that and my coffee pot. But uh There's nothing special about these things. They are just, they are normal, created things. It's just that God uses them to communicate a truth to us. You see, God communicates to us through the normal elements of our lives, the normal stuff, just like he was communicating to the disciples through this work that they do as fishermen. And notice here that Jesus invites the disciples to eat with him and is there that they truly, truly come to an awareness of his personhood. You see, this is something that I've been uh, more and more convinced of the last few years, that everything in the kingdom of God is an invitation. Jesus invites his disciples to come and sit with him and eat with him. Everything in the kingdom of God, everything Jesus does is an invitation. Nothing is heavy-handed. Nothing is overbearing. Nothing, uh, Jesus, like I said last week, Jesus isn't the Kool-Aid man breaking through the wall of your house and demanding your obedience. Jesus rather prepares a meal and he invites the disciples to come and eat and to dine with him. And through these normal created things called bread and fish, he communicates to them his love. And it is in the breaking of the bread that they see him and they know him. You see, there's something powerful then about this breaking of bread that occurs, right, through the, throughout the course of the rest of the New Testament. The early disciples of Jesus were uh, singled out in, in, the, in, the, in the ancient world, primarily by the fact that they were people who broke bread together. They were people who came together around a table, around bread and wine in that day, and they, and they fellowshiped together, and they lived together in, in relationship and in unity and in, in, the, uh, in the Spirit. You see it's, you see it's in these normal activities of our lives that Jesus communicates to us most powerfully, who He actually is. You see, we all want God to communicate to us in big and powerful ways, don't we? We want God to like shake our house. but God has chosen the normal, the regular, the routine, the created as the means through which he will communicate to us. We simply have to be open and aware of that fact. And so this leads me this morning to my kind of final idea, which is that God wants to use your ordinary life as a vehicle for his kingdom. You know, some of us think that in order to be powerful and to do amazing things in this world, we have to like sell everything we own and move to, you know, some Middle Eastern country that what we need to do is become like these high-powered people and do all of these amazing things. But the truth of the matter is, is that God wants to use your ordinary life, the things you do on a day-to-day basis, the people you see on a day-to-day basis, as a means through which, as as the raw material within which he builds his kingdom. We do not need to do the big and the grand all the time. We rather need to see the ways in which God like wants to use the ordinary as a means to be to bring about the kingdom. You see, you see, God brings the sacred out of the ordinary. It's in the. It's as we uh, make breakfast for our kids in the morning. It's as we say hello to that person that we we see on on the r- routinely. It's as we share a kind word with that coworker who looks discouraged or depressed. It's as we live as good citizens in the world, as, as a people who are more concerned with the well-being of other people than we are for our own well-being. It's as we work in the ordinary corners and crevices of our lives that the kingdom of God begins to spring up. If we allow ourselves, if we, if we are open enough to be available to what it is that the Spirit wants to do in and through us. You see, it's the people that you know in your life that God wants to use you to communicate his goodness and his love to. It's the ordinariness of our lives that God wants to transform into the extraordinariness of his kingdom. And in order to be aware of that fact, we simply need to be aware of the fact that Jesus is working. He is working in and through you and I in order to bring this about. The spiritual writer, a guy named Dallas Willard, says this. He says, ordinary people in common surroundings can live from the abundance of God's kingdom, letting the spirit and the actions of Jesus be the natural outflow of their lives. What is the natural outflow of your life? It's a good question to ask from time to time, isn't it? What's the natural outflow of my life? Is the natural outflow of my life just like a kind of simmering anger is the natural outflow of my life um, a selfishness or is the natural outflow of my life blessing is the natural outflow of my life a kind of kingdom love that allows me to serve and sacrifice for others that sees my life as an extension of the lives of the people around me and seeks to build the kingdom of God in ways that are both subtle and insignificant, but at the very same time, like on fire with significance and profundity. This is what it means to be a kingdom person. You see, I'm convinced that the greatest saints that have ever lived, you don't know their names. You don't know who they are. The greatest saints in the world now probably live on some, in some corner of creation that you've never heard of in some country that you will never attend, never go to. They probably live a far simpler life than you and I live right now. And yet, they are open and available to the work of God in their midst. And that transformation changes everything around them. Have you ever been around somebody that just kind of changes the atmosphere in a room? with their love, with their attitude, with their smile. Jesus wants to use you and he wants to use me to build his loving kingdom in our very midst. We just have to be aware enough of the fact that he wants to use the ordinary circumstances of our lives to do it. Amen? Would you stand this morning? This story this morning shows us that the kingdom of God is always breaking in all around us. That there are things happening in your life that you may or may not be aware of that God is specifically doing in order to bring about his plan and his purpose. And so this morning as we go If the band would come up, sorry, I forgot to call you guys up. Make it snappy, band. <laughs> there are things that occur in our lives right that we that we see as being insignificant but that God sees as significant and this morning what i want to do just in our in our last few moments together this morning it's us to do and be in the in the seemingly insignificant parts of our lives that we would be open to the work of the Spirit, even in, those, even in those corners of our lives that we think are no good and no fun. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a drop-off line at school, but it's, it's hellish, right? It can be hellish. And yet, even in those moments, I think God wants to use us. He wants to transform us. He wants to be in our lives with us. And so uh, we're going to sing together this morning. And as we respond to God in worship, I just want you to ask yourself and ask God, what in my life have I been viewing as just like insignificant and unimportant that you, God, actually want to use to build your kingdom? What are you doing in my life right now? Maybe I've, maybe I've seen it, maybe I haven't. And, but yet you want me to be a kingdom person in that sphere in a way that maybe I haven't been or maybe that I haven't been aware of. Maybe you just ask God this question. Where have you been working where I have been unaware? And how can I participate with you in that? So we're going to sing together and just ask that question and respond to God. And then we'll conclude in just a moment in prayer. Okay?
1: What love. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Sing out together. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord Our sins, they are many, his mercies more.
0: Father, we love you. In Holy Spirit, we uh, consecrate our lives and we give them over to you this morning. And we say, Lord, would you take the ordinary stuff of our lives and in your hand, would you turn it into the kingdom stuff, the stuff of eternal significance? Jesus, would we see our lives as more than just a series of days and a series of activities kind of all strung together until we die? But would we know and understand the, the deep significance and the kingdom work that you are doing in our midst? And as you form us and as you shape us and as you build your kingdom through us, God, would we see and know that you are loving and that you are kind and that the work you are doing is more significant and more beautiful than we could ever hope or imagine. Jesus, we love you. Would you send us from this place this morning rejoicing, knowing that you are at work. And we pray it all today in the name of Jesus. Amen, and amen, and amen. Would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a good day.